Welcome to The Mind Renewed. They're so worried that they've got to take over down here the direction of where it's going and get a one world system together, get rid of nationalities, and get one government, one religion, so we won't have war. That's the effort of man to bring about his own salvation. Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm very pleased to welcome to the programme Patrick Wood, who is editor of two online publications, The August Forecast, which analyses trends in markets, economics, politics and finance, and The August Review, which investigates the subject of global elitism. Mr. Wood has been an investment advisor since the mid-1970s, and most famously, he co-authored a two-volume book with Professor Anthony Sutton called Trilaterals Over Washington back in the late 1970s. And that book, which uh, became a bestseller and a textbook frequently used in university political science courses in the US, investigated the elitist globalist organization, the Trilateral Commission, which subject he kindly joins us to discuss today. Mr. Wood, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the program. Well, you're entirely welcome, uh, Julian. It's been my pleasure. Now, I'm actually delighted to have the opportunity to speak to you because we've had a series of interviews here on the program looking at the ways in which the world is being pushed in the direction of uh, global governance or world government. And uh, we've touched on different aspects of this subject, really because we've wanted to avoid defining up front what the new world order is or what it's intended to become. We've tried really to piece it together, to piece a picture together from different people's mm-hmm. perspectives so we can get a more objective view of it. And we've touched on the Trilateral Commission a few times, but we haven't looked into it in any depth. So it is wonderful to have this opportunity to speak to you as one of the main authorities on this subject in the world today. But before we launch into the well, I don't know whether you say it in the US, but we call it the nitty gritty, <laughs> the nitty gritty of this discussion. Could you introduce yourself a little bit more to us? Because I said a little bit about you, but it would be nice to find out a little bit more about your background. Well, certainly. I, I started out my career in the early 1970s as a financial analyst, and um, I was uh, working in the investment world in particular. And that's how I also ran across the Trilateral Commission back in the 1970s. And so I was uh, based in, uh, in Arizona at the time, traveled around a little bit uh, since then, around uh, the western states in any case. And my interest in the Trilateral Commission has continued over the years. I started writing back then, but they haven't gone away. They're still here, and they're still very influential, and everything is going on. So my research continues. My writing continues. So I've had an interest in this from an economic point of view. That's how I originally started studying it with Anthony Sutton. Uh, he was an economist as well. And so we understood the the uh, some of the implications, the early implications of what this could mean economically for the world if this organization got away with what they're talking about getting away with. So here we are, you know, 40 years later, Julian. Uh, it's like time does fly when you're having fun. <laughs> yeah. And how did you actually meet up with Professor Sutton and start looking into this together? It was quite a an odd coincidence. I don't believe in coincidences per se, but it was quite sure. an odd coincidence. I met him down at a gold conference in New Orleans, one of the first ones that was held 
back in the 70s when gold was still, you know, that we were called gold bugs back then, you know. <laughs> we went to this conference and uh, I didn't know him, but the breakfast uh, area was a little too small uh, for the hotel where the conference was. And and they said, well, if you want to eat, you're just going to have to sit wherever we put you. <laughs> I didn't like that at all, especially early in the morning when I'm hungry. I don't want to talk strangers. Uh, we're just the same, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But they sat me down across from Tony Sutton um, in a booth, and we started, you know, just kind of light chat. He was a Brit, you know, and so he had a he had a the catchy British accent. <laughs> so <laughs> that that caught my curiosity, you know. What are you doing here? And uh, he's a very genteel person, uh, very well spoken, and uh, you know, we struck up a conversation. Before breakfast was over, we both realized that we had been studying this group, Trilateral Commission, and also that we were both very alarmed by what we had found or what we were seeing, but we were too timid, if you will, or, or we couldn't find anybody to talk to. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Mm. We couldn't find anybody else to talk about the topic. And so we realized we, we were sitting on a huge story, and we, we agreed that right at that very breakfast meeting, with, really without knowing each other very well, we agreed that we should collaborate on a writing project to began to document expose the trilateral commission. So we immediately started a newsletter called the trilateral observer. And that's how we started. As you said, it must've been the most extraordinary experience to have just met each other like that and find out that you're both looking into this really quite obscure subject. So I no doubt you see that as providential. Absolutely. It was, it was one of those uh, looking back, it was one of those situations that tends to give you gospel bumps. Uh -huh. Gospel bumps are like goosebumps, but <laughs> you know they they feel the same. You know, it's just like wow, there that certainly was not a chance thing. And um, Tony and I became pretty good friends over the period of time after we got to know each other a little bit more. Um, we only lived about ten hours apart by car, so we were able to see each other fairly frequently, uh, meet in person. But uh, it took us on an interesting journey, I have to say, that uh, changed the course of my life for sure. And would you say that your research back in those early days has been borne out in uh, what you've seen happening in the intervening years? Well, you know, Julian, I, I have to say I've gone back and reviewed a lot of the old newsletters that we wrote in the 1970s and our book, too, for, the, for that matter. And I, I don't say this at all to make us look good. That, that has, that's a useless thing to do. But I want to say we absolutely nailed it in 1978. There was nothing that we really said back then that has proven inaccurate or untrue. We blueprinted their plan perfectly to reveal what their own paper said they were going to do. You know, here we are, all these, you know, these later years, they have accomplished everything they said they were going to do. And so, you know, now I have a historical perspective. You know, after 25 years passes, they say it passes into history. Now we have a historical perspective to look back and ask the question, the forecast that you made back then, were they valid and did they come true? And I say absolutely, positively, yes, they have. Okay, well, perhaps the best way to actually start getting into the nitty gritty, as I said earlier, is to um, ask some basic questions so that people can get a good idea of, of what we're actually talking about here. So obviously, it's a very famous organization, but I suspect that not everybody does know what it's about. So could you give us a description of the Trilateral Commission? Tell us about its beginnings, who started it? Why was it started? What's it all about? Absolutely. It was co-founded in 1973 by David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski. The two of them had floated the idea at a 1972 Bilderberg meeting that was held in Europe. 
And they got quite a bit of accolade for it and uh, encouragement to go do it. And so they did. Uh, they came back, and in 1973, they, they, they started this organization. They started out with about 289 members, handpicked members, from three geographic regions. That's where the word trilateral comes from, by the way. North America was one. That's where both Brzezinski and Rockefeller were from. And they picked one-third of the members from, from North America. Uh, one-third approximately came from Europe, and one-third came from Japan. That was the initial geographic makeup of the Trilateral Commission. About 97 were from the United States in particular, a few from Canada, but 97 about from the U.S. Cut across political parties here, Democrats and Republicans uh, equally. It didn't matter. It, it was not a political movement at all. And the makeup of the group all the way through the three regions was bankers, industrialists, academics, politicians, uh, some high-level politicians, uh, media newspapers, um, law firms, NGOs, not governmental organizations. And so that's kind of how they started out. So the word commission makes it sound like it's some official body appointed by government in some way. But this is not the case, is it? No, it was very shrewd on their part to call themselves a commission because it was just slightly misleading. <laughs> you know, so, so it's a private organization, is it really? It was private or totally private organization. It was funded initially almost entirely by David Rockefeller. And uh, Brzezinski was the academic. Rockefeller, of course, was uh, the international banker. He was one of the top shareholders in Chase Manhattan Bank. And he had a lot of other investment interests as well. Uh, but he was, uh, you know, a financier and a global mover and shaker. And you mentioned all these different kinds of people who were involved in this organization. Well, how did they actually get to be involved? Did they apply or were they sort of did they have the shoulder tapped and say, would you like to join? Well, that's exactly right. They tapped people to join. You, there was no membership uh, application form for sure, but they had an executive committee that talked about who they'd like to invite, and then they'd go out and ask them. Uh, you know, they could decide whether they wanted to or not. I never heard of anybody that got tapped and said no, but I wouldn't expect to either. Mm. You know, the idea is uh, you wait for them to tap you. It's kind of like joining a, a fraternity or a sorority in a college, you know, you hope that somebody notices you and they come over and they tap you on the shoulder and say, come with us. We want to candidate you for our, our exclusive little club. This is the way they've done it ever since, by the way. And they've, they've had a North American leadership group and a European leadership group and a Japanese, well, now Asian leadership group who makes those decisions basically on who to pick from their particular regions. Mm. Now, on the face of it, just looking at it like that, it, it seems to be, well, that's okay. You know, why not? You can jo join a group and uh, be invited. And what's the big deal? Okay, it's a particular stratum of society. But your contention is that they have undue influence over governments uh, of the world, really. So could you flesh out why that is such a problem in your view? Well, they proposed two things initially. This was all over their early writings and is still there they proposed to create a new international economic order. And that was in contrast to the existing international economic order that we saw in the world back in the 70s. It wasn't perfect, but it wasn't all that bad either. But they said, no, we need a new international economic order. And secondly, they declared their intention to take down trade barriers like tariffs and duties and stuff like that around the world to implement this so-called system of free trade. Hmm. It's another brilliant naming convention, by the way, on their part. <laughs> free trade has never been free. It's cost everybody 
uh, just yeah. about everything they have ever since, you know. Yeah. But so um, does, does that mean then they were actually behind things like GATT and NAFTA? And- uh, even more so than that, Julian. They created those things specifically. Yeah. Um, I'll give you some examples as we go through this. But um, they were exclusively behind the creation, for instance, of GATT, the World Trade Organization, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and so on. This had impacts around the world. Several other trade treaties as well over the years have been their creation. And are they still behind things like the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Absolutely. In fact, the current USTR, that's the uh, United States Trade Representative, the current USTR is a member of the Trilateral Commission, and 9 out of 12 of all of the USTRs since 1973 have been members of the, or actually have been appointed to be USTR. That's beyond coincidence, don't you think? <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Um, so they've dominated that position, and they've so anything that they wanted to, you know, to negotiate as far as trade treaties are concerned, this has all been at the hands of the Trilateral Commission and their members. And am I right in thinking that this influence really kicked in in the days of the Carter administration? That's where it started to be obvious that they were doing that they were up to something. If the Carter experience had not have happened, I don't think Tony or I would have been too excited about the Trilateral Commission because it, it would have just been one more group that was spouting off hot air. And I don't think we would have paid attention. But Jimmy Carter and Walter Mondale, uh, elected president and vice president in 1976, both of them, as it turns out, were members of the Trilateral Commission. That was, a, you know, OK, you got my attention now. What's this all about? And then the very first thing Carter did was to appoint Brzezinski to be national security advisor. At the time, Brzezinski was executive director also of the Trilateral Commission. So, okay, that's number two. (laughs) And then the next thing that happened, even though Carter had told everybody he was unconnected to the Washington establishment, he proceeded to appoint almost one third of the United States Trilateral Commission members, the top cabinet positions in Carter's administration. One third of that membership, there was 28 members of the Trilateral Commission were marched in almost literally and sat down at cabinet level positions all over his administration. This is a man who said he wasn't connected. (laughs) Right. The man who was a peanut farmer from Georgia, you know, a man of the people. He also said, I'll never lie to you. That was his big campaign pitch. Mm, that sounds familiar. Well, I don't know that he could tell the difference between lying and <laughs> not lying, so maybe he wasn't lying when he said it. <laughs> <laughs> but, was that was that something that was limited to that period of time, or has this influence continued to that extent down the ages in the U.S. administrations? It has continued throughout the ages, Julian. They they I called it a hijacking of the executive branch of our government back in 1976, oh. and I think that hijacking has persisted ever since through every administration. And, you know, for instance, I just mentioned that uh, nine out of 12 of the U.S. trade representatives have been members of the Trilateral Commission. Well, this person is appointed by the president. Our president also appoints the uh, president of the World Bank. The IMF uh, typically gets his head from uh, European appointment, but the U.S. president gets to pick the president of the World Bank. So the uh, trade representative position, nine out of 12, have been trilaterals. World Bank presidents, there's been eight of them since 73. 
Six of those have been members of the Trilateral Commission. Wow. <laughs> amazing coincidences here. <laughs> Just an amazing coincidence, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, if you look back at the executive branch itself, you'll find that Carter and Mondale were both members. George H.W. Bush was a member uh, as vice president for Ronald Reagan. Then Bush became president. Then you have Bill Clinton and Al Gore. Both of them were members of the Trilateral Commission. Uh, George W. Bush, uh, from 2001 to nine, he had Dick Cheney was a member of the trilateral commission. And so seven out of 12 of our top executive cadre have been members of the trilateral commission over the years. And that doesn't mean that Barack Obama is off the hook because he has been surrounded by members of the trilateral commission in his own administration ever since he got seated 2009. So, and uh, am I right in thinking that uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski was actually behind Obama? He was very much in the same way that he was behind uh, Jimmy Carter in '76. You know, he was uh, considered at one time to be the chief foreign policy advisor to Obama. Mm. So, looking at this as a whole, then we seem to have a situation where really policy is being dictated, or at least heavily influenced, by a transnational private group rather than being something that's actually coming from the indigenous people of the United States. That's exactly right. Mm. That's exactly right. Yeah. And um, can I also ask you, you did mention the Bilderberg Group, but I want to ask you what connections you feel there are between others of these kinds of organizations, like the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, the Royal Institution of International Affairs, because these sorts of organizations have come up in interviews that we've had previously. Are all these groups interconnected? They are interconnected philosophically, if nothing else. The Bilderberg Group is really just a discussion group, mm. but it's a discussion group of very, very important people in, in the world. Right. You're invited to attend those meetings. You don't just uh, you know, send in your $100 check and say, I'm coming. So only the, the cream of the crop of the global elitists get invited to Bilderberg, and usually it's for a purpose, I'm sure. And they have speakers that come in and speak to them, and they have their backroom cigar sessions and stuff, you know, to talk about things. But it is a discussion group. There is no policy. They, they write no policy papers. They have no action committees or anything like that. You know, they just meet and talk, and then they go their respective ways. And they meet in absolute secrecy. And this, this is something that Christopher Booker in his, his book, The Great Deception, says that he thinks that this is actually deliberate in order, to, or at least the implication is to sort of focus attention on the Bilderberg group. And that, of course, takes attention off elsewhere. Well, it, it has, has had that effect. I, the, the Bilderberg group in general has been given too much credibility for actually doing things. They're not the ones that do anything. They just they talk about it, but they're not the doers. Huh. The doers have been members of the, like of the Trilateral Commission in particular. And you say, well, okay, what do you mean by doers? Well, who was it that captured the executive branch of the, the U.S. government? <laughs> it wasn't the Bilderbergers and it wasn't the CFR. It was the Trilateral Commission. Mm. They set out with an action plan to do these things. And it wasn't, pri and, and I want to state early on, it was not primarily political. Even though we see them taking over the political infrastructure they were not primarily interested in the political infrastructure for its own sake. They were interested in creating a new international economic order. And it would be improper to say that this is a political coup, although there are signs of it, okay, but it, that's not really what it is. It's an economic coup, mm -hmm. an economic coup. So could you explain then what the essence of that new international economic order was in their thinking? Well, we didn't know what it was, but really back in the 70s, you know, both of us, Sutton and I both had an economic background, and I, I didn't 
it, well, actually, we both kind of thought, well, maybe they're going to rearrange everything so that the slot machine pays them twice as much as everybody else, hmm. which would be a typical thing to assume at that point, because, you know, usually that's what elitists do. They try and game the system so that they get more money out of it than anybody else does. But, you know, that, that'd be kind of like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, you know, you know, it may still go down, but. Right. But yeah. The, I mean, this is the sort of thing that people bring up about the TPP, you know, apart from its tremendous secrecy, you know, the, the, the idea that this is really all about giving the vast powers to global corporations uh, over and above nation states that so they could basically make loads and loads of money. But uh, it, that's not the whole picture. Well, the economic side of this is really what they were after is all I'm saying. And so the new international economic order at the time we thought would just be a some kind of continuation of Keynesian economics. But we were wrong. I mean, and I didn't know we were wrong until about six years ago when I started to study technocracy. Uh -huh. There was a historic movement actually existed in America called technocracy during the 1930s. It had a, a buildup that was quite a bit longer than that, but it really started in earnest in the 30s as a social movement. And this movement technocracy at the height of the Depression, mind you, they proposed an alternative economic system that would completely replace capitalism. As a brand, this had never been tried in the history of the world, but they proposed to create an economic system based on energy rather than on supply and demand. And this was radical. I mean, it was a, this was radical, radical stuff. And they had at one time as many as five hundred thousand card-carrying members of the Technocracy Incorporated organization in the 30s. And it was a huge social movement at the time. And these scientists and engineers that were behind it, many of them, the top people in the scientific world, engineering world at the time, they very carefully crafted out this, the whole plan on how they're going to create this economic system. And so I've later come to discover that this economic system that was defined really in the 1930s was what Zbigniew Brzezinski picked up and brought into the Trilateral Commission as the new international economic order. Mm -hmm. And so I think now I can say with great certainty that we have discovered what they meant when they said new international economic order. They were envisioning something truly brand new that had never been done before. It would eventually obviate capitalism altogether and institute an economic system that was based on energy and energy use, distribution, and control. And you say that the original technocratic vision was popular during the days of the Depression, presumably because, you know, capitalism was seen to have failed at the time. But it fell out of favor, didn't it, afterwards? So how did that vision of technocracy keep alive all those years? Well, you know, they started out at Columbia University in New York City. And Columbia, back in the 20s and 30s, was a very progressive organization, an educational organization. And they did a lot of state-of-the-art things, so to speak, back then, especially with engineering when technocracy came on the scene, Columbia saw fit to take them in under their wings, so to speak, and they did for a time. It was kind of a short stint, but it gave technocracy a great shot in the arm of credibility that Columbia, of, of all organizations, would, would pick them up and kind of give their stamp of approval. It turned out that one of the promoters of technocracy, a man by the name of Howard Scott, turned out to be a fraud. <laughs> He said he had an engineering degree from somewhere in Europe, but nobody ever really asked or checked. And so he was he was riding pretty high, running around the country, giving speeches and getting stories in newspapers and so on. And 
some good researcher, uh, journalist, finally did some investigation on him, found out he didn't have a degree at all, that everything he learned, he learned from on-the-job training, and he was basically a fraud. Well, Columbia University kicked Howard Scott out like a, a football, <laughs> and uh, you know they punted him right out of the university in a hurry <laughs> and disavowed everything on technocracy. But all of the top uh, engineers at Columbia at the time that were involved in this they didn't get touched. They all stayed there at Columbia. They finished out their careers, and I'm sure that they all talked about technocracy over the years. We just happened to find in 1968, along comes Zbigniew Brzezinski, and guess where he's a professor? At Columbia University. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. you know, I'm yeah. not going to draw the connection anymore. Hmm. Would you say that the current economic situation that we're in sort of reflects uh, the same pattern back in those days? Do you think that the Trilateral Commission, with their technocratic view, think that this is a golden opportunity these days to influence people? Oh, absolutely. And it goes beyond that, Julian. I probably ought to give you a couple of examples. Uh -huh. The European Union experiment, the project, right? The entire project was created by the members of the Trilateral Commission in Europe. David Rockefeller wrote about this in, his, in 1998 when he credited the EU's progress to the early members of the Trilateral Commission that had you know, done things in the early days to set the stage for the EU being formed in the end. It was a long-range plot. It didn't just evolve you know, kind of randomly, but rather it was an intentional incremental plot to establish a network of control over Europe through this new union of regulation, not of democratic government, but of regulation. And although I don't live under that system, I cannot appreciate you know, how difficult it might be, but I've talked to people who have, and, and they basically just wring their hands <laughs> on what's happened in Europe over the last 20 to 30 years. But even in 2002, when, when the, the uh, I want to say, the constitution of the, the EU uh, constitutional document was written, the lead architect on that was um, Valerie uh, Gustard de Stang, who was a member of the Trilateral Commission. And so their fingerprints have been on this all over from day one. And let me give you another concrete example of how this worked out. You remember when Italy and Greece both were up almost in flames uh, in 2010 and 11 major economic crisis in both countries. In Greece, as the economic system was falling apart, financial system was falling apart, you might remember that a prime minister was appointed to Greece by the EU. Yeah. And almost the same time in Italy, a prime minister was appointed to Italy, unelected. Both of them unelected yeah. from the EU. Yeah, that was an astonishing period, actually. And I was surprised at how people... I mean, I would have, would have thought there would be an absolute uproar about that. But there didn't seem, there was some, obviously, there was some disapproval, but, you know, it wasn't as, as striking as I thought it would be. It, I would have expected more, but then again, there's not a great sensitivity to this in that region. But here's the key. If you go back and read the press articles surrounding those two appointments, you'll find two facts that will just absolutely pop your eyeballs out. Number one, both of them were members of the Trilateral Commission. Hmm. Number two... The European press itself called them technocrats. Absolutely, yes. There you go. Okay, so did the Trilateral Commission have a lasting influence in the European Union? 
Absolutely, positively. There's, they not only created it, but they're now controlling it as even evidenced by the fact that when it really hits the fan, members of the Trilateral Commission appoint other members of the Trilateral Commission to take over the country. <laughs> it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah. If people saw this, I don't think they'd be too happy about it. No. And do you agree with those people who say that the EU is, in fact, a trial run for the whole world? In many ways, it is. And in many ways, Europe is, uh, or the European Union has, has impressed technocracy on the continent. And it wouldn't be unfair to call it a technocracy. If you went back and studied the original technocracy from the 30s, you probably would, you know, would see all the parallels and stuff and say, yep, this is a technocracy as it was envisioned back then. But even if that were not enough, you know, if you just look at actually what's happened, like the appointment of uh, Mario Monte and Papademus as these prime ministers, that both of them came from the ranks. In fact, you know, Mario Monte was the chairman of the European part of the Trilateral Commission. <laughs> he wasn't just a run a you know rank and file member. He was the chairman of the European group. So. You know, these people have had undue influence. I mean, the word, the phrase undue influence doesn't even come close <laughs> to, to say what I'm thinking right now. <laughs> they own it lock, stock, no. and barrel. And yes, it is a template. Yes, the, the regionalism concept has come to America as well. You know, we're being subverted. We're behind you guys, but we're, we're being subverted in exactly the no. same way. No. Yeah, I want to look at a couple of the ways in which the subversion seems to be taking place. But before we leave the earlier days of the Trilateral Commission and the character Zbigniew Brzezinski, I wanted to ask you about his book, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era, and uh, what what window that gives to us as to the kind of mindset that Brzezinski had, and presumably he's representative of the commission itself. Well, that's right. Brzezinski was uh, a smart guy. There's no no denying that. I don't agree with him on hardly anything, but he was a smart mm. guy. And he, he wrote, uh, he, he kind of described with a broad brush, you know, how society evolved, if you will, in his mind. And he talked about, in his book, he talked about the religious era where narrow-minded people did things like, you know, read the Bible and, <laughs> and <laughs> you know, lovely. He called that massive ignorance. Basically, he, he he couldn't figure out anybody could read the Bible and get anything out of it worth using. So he he figured that all those people were just massively ignorant and didn't know what they were doing. And then there came a period, he said, of nationalism, uh, where you had the na the nation state really rose to power. Uh, Great Britain for many years was riding the crest of that wave. But others have as well, Portugal, Spain, uh, the U.S. then. And there was a certain equality before the law internationally with nationalism. And then uh, after that, he describes the era of Marxism. And Brzezinski was not a Marxist, by the way. But hmm. he stated of Marxism that it represented a further vital and creative stage in the maturing of man's universal vision. So he saw, he saw that Marxism as a stepping stone to whatever the fourth and final stage was. And then he describes the fourth and final stage as rational humanism on a global scale. He called it the result of American communist evolutionary transformations. And the essence of technotronic, the word he used, technotronic, is actually a knockoff word for technocratic. I was unsure of that after I studied technocracy. I went back and I read his book just to verify it. 
And sure enough, you see the same lines of argument in Brzezinski's book that you saw in the 1930s documents and books that were created from technocracy itself, the same ideas. And so the technotronic era is one where science controls society, not politicians, science, scientists, engineers, and so on. And what Brzezinski actually stated in his book, this is a, a very concise concept. He wrote like this. This is a direct quote, just one paragraph. He said, the nation state as a fundamental unit of man's organized life has ceased to be the principal creative force. International banks and multinational corporations are acting and planning in terms that are far in advance of the political concepts of the nation state, close quote. So you can see at a very dim view of the nation state, as do all of these elites. They have no regard for the nation state whatsoever. Zooming back to the 1930s, when capitalism looked like it was dead, people hated politicians and technocrats in particular hated politicians. They blamed them for the Great Crash, the Great Depression. They blamed them for World War One. And uh, there was just a general hatred for politicians. So technocracy as a system, as an economic system, said, you know what, we just need to do away with politicians. We just need to sweep them out of the way altogether. And we need to implement our own system of control. And you see what Brzezinski was alluding to when he says that these international banks and corporations are acting and planning in terms that are ahead of the concept of the nation state. It means that parliaments and congresses and government bodies have been rendered impotent, irrelevant. It reminds me of a quote by Carol Quigley in Tragedy and Hope, and I will quote it because I happen to have it here, where he says, the powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences. It seems to be the same pattern there that Carol Quigley was describing in that book. Oh, it is, absolutely. They, they were two peas in a pod intellectually. Hmm. Absolutely. So what kind of, I mean, you mentioned evolution and humanism with respect to Brzezinski. So what kind of philosophy did he have? And was it a materialist philosophy in his view? Or would you say that there's some kind of spiritual element to Brzezinski's thinking? Well, you know, there was. And this kind of takes us off into, a, uh, into another area. But the world doesn't stand alone as an economic system. You know, society is uh, built upon, and I hate to even invoke his name, but... Um, Society has been likened to a three-legged stool. You have the economic system, you have the political system, and then you have the spiritual philosophical system. And all three of those have to be in some measure of compatibility with each other or else society will fall apart. This has been well known you know, by political scientists and stuff for a long time. In 1979, Senator Barry Goldwater wrote a book called With No Apologies, and to my knowledge, he was the only politician ever that publicly called out the Trilateral Commission. But this is what he said. He said, the Trilateral Commission is international and is intended to be the vehicle for multinational consolidation of the commercial and banking interests by seizing control of the political government of the United States. The Trilateral Commission represents a skillful, coordinated effort to seize control and consolidate the four centers of power, political, monetary, intellectual, and ecclesiastical. 
And so this is exactly what we've seen. We've seen people, for instance, like Stephen Rockefeller, who was another principal peer of David Rockefeller and uh, formerly of, of the, the late Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, Stephen Rockefeller has been involved in ecumenicalism and you know the interfaith movement globally for all of his life, essentially. And he's been pushing his money and his, uh, you know, his influence and so on to develop the third leg of the stool, which would be the ecclesiastical slash religious side. So there's been a huge push in the last 30 years to bring unification to the various religions of the world to create a religious experience or religious system that would properly support the economic and the political, if you call it the, the regulatory system of the world to control the people. So this is a completely instrumental view of religion here. This is not something coming from a deep conviction in a religious sense. This is seeing that uh, the religious dimension to life is something that needs to be exploited in order to bring about this new world order. And I mean, I'm saying this because when I was speaking to Dr. Martin Erdmann, he, in the conversation, uh, he brought up the philosopher August Comte um, of the 19th century, and uh, we talked about Julian Huxley in the 20th century, both of whom saw religion as being necessary in some way to bring about uh, a new society. So what you're speaking about here seems to fit very much with that philosophy. Absolutely. And the philosophy of, of scientism is really what we see running through mm. all of this, I think. If, if, you could, if you could take it down to the very nubs, I think probably Dr. Erdman talked about this perhaps a little bit. But the philosophy of scientism basically says that the only correct view of reality and the only correct source of truth is determined by the scientific method versus any other type, you know, like, for instance, from the Bible or from observation, even. So scientism as a philosophy, we find it, I find it, the root behind technocracy. I find it the root behind transhumanism as well. All of these things are science-based. Yeah, or they call it science-based, and <laughs> it's pseudoscience. It's not real science. It's not empirical science. <laughs> it's a good buzz term. It's science-based. It must be truthful. That's what they say, and that's exactly the argument. Well, who can argue with science? Right. You know, well, after all, you know, science is science. <laughs> that's right. Yes, and of course, and it immediately says that you've got to have the scientist and the engineer in control because they are the people who have the keys to reality in a way that nobody else has. That's right. It was the scientists and engineers and technicians in the 1930s who said, "We and we alone." are able to control society in a way that can prosper and thrive. And it was a utopian system. You know, it was, uh, Americans mm -hmm. rejected it in the end. And, uh, but I would point out that it was, uh, it was Aldous Huxley that wrote the book Brave New World. That was a classic book. I had to read that book in high school. They never told me what it was all about. I had to read that book and do a book report on it. Scared the pants off of me. <laughs> yes. As indeed did 1984, when I had to read that at school as well. Yeah. 1984 yeah. as well. I find out that Huxley wrote his book in 1932, <laughs> right at the peak when technocracy was just about to burst into full bloom. And Huxley was looking, he got his model for the book straight out of technocracy. This is what was going on, and it, he saw an opportunity to write a book that you know was different and uh, you know forward-thinking or whatever. This basically was his view of what would happen if technocracy got a hold, if if the engineers and, and scientists actually did end up running society and threw all the politicians out, which they would have loved to do. 
Can I ask you to comment on ways in the modern world in which the scientists and the engineers seem to be at the moment given a great deal of power in order to fashion the modern world? And I'm thinking here of things that have come up in the interviews, particularly with Martin Eldman and Michael Shaw. And this is the smart grid and Agenda 21, which on the face of it look as if they're not connected to this. But how are they connected? Are they connected? Oh, they're more than connected, Julian. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) There was a UN commission in 1987, a a big one, created to uh, lay the groundwork for Agenda 21. And a book was produced by that special commission called Our Common Future. And that became the book that gave way to Agenda 21, to the Rio Conference, the Earth Summit, it was called in uh, 1992. Our Common Future book was produced by the Brundtland Commission, the chairman of which was Gro Brundtland from Europe. Gro Brundtland was a member of the Trilateral Commission. I had a feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's just beyond coincidence. She was a member of the Trilateral Commission. And so when the whole consortium went to Rio to create Agenda 21, it was her policies that were laid on the table. So Agenda 21 got formalized through the Rio conference, and then it spread throughout the world through the auspices of the United Nations. This was the, I liken the United Nations to the contagion. A disease can't spread without a contagion. And stupid ideas like what they had cooked up in the 70s and so on would never, ever make it in the free world. They would not possibly make it in the free world. They would die without infecting anybody. They, you know, we rejected, Americans rejected technocracy in the 1930s. We would have rejected it again had we known. But they came at it from the trilateral, because they handed all off these ideas off to the United Nations, and they got the entire focus of the United Nations on sustainable development, and now we see where we are today. This has all been their program from day one. This is what they wanted to do to create this system of global technocracy. Remember that all of the programs you're talking about here are related to energy. You see energy all over, you know, the screen. Smart grid is about controlling energy. Global warming is about controlling hydrocarbons. Cap and trade is about controlling the financial side, you know, of carbon. All of these things are related to energy. And this points to some kind of new economic system. So nobody would be surprised when UNEP, that's the United Nations Environmental Program, publishes on their website a definition of what they're calling a green economy. And they call it this. They say a green economy implies the decoupling of resource use and environmental impacts from economic growth. These investments, both public and private, provide the mechanism for the reconfiguration of business, infrastructure, and institutions and for the adoption of sustainable consumption and production processes. <laughs> That's a mouthful, but the first statement is the first clue. A green economy implies a decoupling of resource use from economic growth. Anybody with half a brain ought to do a disconnect on that one <laughs> because you cannot, in our current economic system, you cannot decouple resource use from economic growth. That's just not possible. Economic growth requires resources for Pete's sake, requires capital, it requires inputs, raw materials, labor, and all, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the green economy, which is based on energy, takes an entirely different tact on how 
the economic system will run. And so they further write about the necessity for the reconfiguration of business, the reconfiguration of infrastructure, and the reconfiguration of institutions. You say, well, that's odd, you know. Well, you know what? Europe has been reinvented, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and a major part of the original technocratic vision was to do away with the price-based system and to, to say to uh, go mm-hmm. to an energy-based system. Do they have this in view then actually to get rid of the money that we're using in the world today and replace it with a different system? Well, that would be, I think, the ideal in the end would be to replace what we currently call money with some kind of system of energy credits or some kind of script based on energy availability and distribution. Uh, There's nobody's really written a lot of that in modern times, a little bit, but uh, there's not an abundance of literature. But we do see the birth pangs of it with programs like cap and trade and, you know, carbon offsets and those sorts of things. Yeah. And talking about the smart grid, there's also the other side of it, and that's the information transfer, not just the energy. Uh, Do you see the invasion of um, authorities into household information being part of this infrastructure as well? Well, it is. And in order to underscore that, I should read the first five requirements technocracy proposed in 1932. Engineers always create lists of requirements when they get a good project going, you know. (laughs) And so they were good enough to do that back in the 30s. And it stands today. It's on the Internet. You can go find the technocracy study course on the Internet and look it up. It's, uh, It's there for everybody to see. And on page 232, you'll see these five requirements in black and white. Number one says, uh, register on a continuous 24-hour-per-day basis the total net conversion of energy. (laughs) There's one. Number two, by means of the regular registration of energy converted and consumed, make possible a balanced load. Well, balanced load is all over the smart grid literature. That's all they talk about is balanced load, you know, whatever that means. So you go back to technocracy in the 1930s, you find out what balanced load means. But here's number three. Provide a continuous inventory of all production and consumption. So this is an economic issue. Number four, provide a specific registration of the type, kind, etc., of all goods and services where produced and where used. <laughs> that is a complete profiling of the economic system. Which wasn't possible back in those days. Which was not possible yeah. in those days, but it is today, and it's being done. The fifth requirement says, and this, this one will really get you and answer your question very precisely, Quote, provide specific registration of the consumption of each individual plus a record and description of the individual. Now, I don't need to tell you about the implications of the total surveillance society today, be it bioidentification, you know, Mm -hmm. bioidentics, RFID, what the NSA, uh, you know, like in our country and around the world is doing to spy on people and to collect information on people. I read an article yesterday that even commercial firms have are banding together to mine data out of the Internet and stuff to create up to 41,000 data points on every individual in the country, <laughs> in our yeah, country. It's, it's, it's absolutely And that's just private. Yeah, that's not yeah. government. That's but, just private. Sure. But this is being driven by this new economic model then, really, isn't it? I mean, yes, it what, what I find fascinating about this is when I think about the, the classic criticism of socialism by the uh, say by the Austrian uh, school of economics was the, it was the idea that you know the socialism couldn't couldn't find any 
real mechanism for discovering price in the marketplace because everything was just too complex. But with this vision here and with the technology going into the future, presumably they're thinking, actually, we can find out about all transactions, all supply and all demand, and we can actually control the whole situation. That undercuts that classic criticism of socialism. Well, it does. And and in order for technocracy to work, information is key. They knew back then that the system had to have a complete transparency as to everything within the system. And they didn't really view people as people, by the way. They, uh, they basically, they had a totally, uh, you know, um, an evolutionary view of humans just being a, you know, a bag full of atoms. Jumping, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You know, more animals on the planet, you know. And so they, they really do they really do look at the human population as just so many mm-hmm. uh, so many herds of animals to manage, and in order to do that you have to have data, and the more data you have the better. And and honestly, what what an engineer will say if an engineer's project fails, maybe it's just pride of uh, you know development or whatever. But the the knee jerk reaction that you get from an engineer whose project fails is well we need more data, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you know how many times have we heard that actually? Like with global warming, you know, well, we need more data. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, when will you stop saying that? <laughs> now, this this whole uh, picture that you've presented here is, well, it's overwhelming, really. You know, just sitting here as a, a single person in this little house here, I'm thinking yep. to myself, well, you know, exactly. this is, I, I, I can't even begin to conceive of where this is going to go in, in the future. And Apart from just talking about it like this with you, what can I do about it? So what I'm really asking you here is how do you suggest that we respond to this information? (laughs) Should we just sort of go into a a dark hole somewhere and forget it? Or is there something we can do? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I don't know where you can find a dark hole anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Not many around anymore. But, um, you know, that it's uh, there may not be a human solution to this. Uh, If there is. It's going to be on a local basis, not on a global basis at this point. And, um, you know, they have impressed this program down on us from a global to local basis. And if there is any pushback, it's going to have to take place on the local basis because local people have no ability to touch these people at the top of the pyramid. You know, they just don't. Uh, You know, politicians are ineffective at this point. They can't do anything. But, you know, we, we still have some ability to deal with our own uh, city councils, with our own, you know, county commissioners, things like that, you know, our local government bodies to educate them and to have them uh, resist or deny this uh, sustainable development push that's coming down from the United Nations. However, it is global. I have to say that it's not just in one country. It's global. It's just as much in Europe and in England as it is here. So even if one country cleans up its act entirely and were to throw out Agenda 21 altogether, that's just one country. What about the other 285 or whatever there there is around the world, many of whom uh, have no idea whatsoever what's going on because they're too busy just surviving hand to mouth? So would you say then that the answer really is a mixture of information so that people do know what's going on and then as many people as possible acting at the local level in order to disempower as much as possible at the higher level? Exactly. That's about the only reasonable plan of action at this point, you know, that anybody can expect. And I'm, mm. I'm sad to say for all the people who are involved in trying to, you know, elect senators and congressmen and, you know, high level people around the world and stuff. I'm just kind of sorry to, to tell them that you're basically you're wasting your time. Your ladder's leaning up against the wrong wall <laughs> because no matter who you hire, they're going to get sucked into the system and, and you'll never see them again. And that's just going to be the end of your effort. 
effort would be better put into local action rather than international action at this point. But um, there are obviously some some great biblical truths that people should take to heart through this whole thing. And I think this is something that's been missed. And those who study Bible prophecy, for instance, which I have for a long, long time, and, and this has opened my eyes to new horizons that I never knew existed before, the whole topic of Bible prophecy has always kind of focused on you know, well, what's going to happen with a global government? You know, how are we going to get a, a dictator over the whole world? And, and you know, how will the Antichrist rise? And, you know, all kinds of different fears and stuff have come up. I remember back in the 70s when the first grocery scanner came into the United States, people just went nuts. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, it's the mark of the beast. You know, don't even go in a Safeway because or that store, because, you know, if that laser hits your hand, you're going to get a mark, you know. Sure. And. Oh, you know, these things have come and gone. There's been lots of them over the years that people got alarmed at. But this is one thing that's been missed, Julian, in my estimation. And I think it's a very, very exciting possibility for understanding Bible prophecy in these end days. And that is, whoever the Antichrist is, I don't believe that we know who he is now, and nor will we until uh, later. Whoever the Antichrist is going to be that will be the ultimate, the final global dictator of the world, this person is going to have to have an infrastructure that will support his dictatorship. Now, the tribulation period only lasts seven years. It's not very long compared to all of history. And I have to say that the devil knows that he only has seven years when the time clock starts ticking for that final conflict between God and Satan. When a time clock starts ticking, how many tick-tocks do you think the devil's going to take to build infrastructure? I say none. (laughs) Mm. I say none because there's no time. Seven years is not enough time. If he's going to build his infrastructure, it has to be now. And I would submit that the system of technocracy is the perfect economic system for a global dictator to ultimately take over and actually be able to control the nations and the people of the world in lockstep order. Yeah. It would be impossible to do that with concept of the nation state. It would not work. There has to be a system of control where he can make people do what he wants them to do, even against their will. So control over energy, for instance. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> because if you can shut off somebody's uh, electrical power in the middle of summer or winter, You can get them to beg just to do about anything you want. And, you know, what about control over water? Because smart grid is also going to control water as well as gas and, you know, natural gas, fuel oil, if it's in in the mix. Water is essential for life. So what you're saying that all this would be a fulfillment of that, you won't be able to buy or sell unless you have the mark of the beast, which, of course, is this allegiance to that particular system. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And while I have to confess over the years, we have looked for that world dictator, you know, who's that person going to be? And we've, uh, you know, Christians have had ideas over the decades, you know, somebody, somebody in the political system, oh, that guy looks bad, you know, it could be him. (laughs) And they come up with reasons on why, you know, why that person could be the one. But um, one thing we've missed is that in the book of Revelation, in chapter 18 in particular, In verse 15, we have a clue as to the economic nature of the kingdom of Antichrist. And I think it's well to take it to heart. Verse 15 says, The merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, shall stand afar off 
for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. This is the merchants who, who are watching Babylon burn. And the merchants are the key people in that seven-year period, the merchants of the world. They're actually called the mighty men of that time. You know, you can reflect back to the Old Testament and you hear about mighty men of David and you hear about the mighty men of old. Doesn't exactly say what they were, but there was a there was an amount of esteem accredited to them, whatever it was, whether they're rich or powerful or strong or warriors. When somebody is called a mighty man, it means like he's the, the chief of society, if you will. And so during the seven-year period, the emphasis is on the merchants of the world, the economic system of the world. And, you know, you could read the whole of chapter 18, and you find out when Babylon is finally destroyed in verse 11, for instance, it says, the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn for her, for no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. <laughs> The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stone and pearls and linen and purple and silk and scarlet and so on. It goes, the list goes way, way on. Iron and marble and cinnamon and wine and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses. All of those things that are essential to economy and to life. These mighty men of the earth, the merchants, are the ones seen controlling this entire system. And the Antichrist is sitting on top of them controlling them. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense that we seem to, in many cases, have got this the wrong way around, as you're saying, that we've been looking at individuals rather than looking at these structures that are gradually building over a long period of time, which are making way for the possibility that this could actually come about as depicted in prophecy. That makes a great deal of sense, what you're saying. Here. Yeah, so it's, it's an area that's worthy of study. That's all I would say right now. Yeah. And I don't think that enough people at, at this point in the, in the, in the Christian community and the scholarly community especially – that are concerned with Bible prophecy even have a clue what technocracy is or a clue what's going on in the world because this stuff is, it's not hidden. I mean, you can't call it a conspiracy because I've discovered it. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm nothing special in that sense. I got all my information from available sources. Yeah, that's interesting. How do you, how do you react to that? You must be called a conspiracy theorist at times. Oh, I've been called that since 1978. Yeah. Say nonsense. No, there's no yeah. conspiracy here. You wrote it. You know, I mean, not you, but I, I say, look, <laughs> yes. you wrote this. I just pull out the book and show it to him. Who wrote this book? Mm. You know, who said this stuff? I'm just repeating what you said. Yeah. So it's, it's not conspiracy theorizing. It's conspiracy discovery, really, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I know. And, and, and a lot of this, uh, do, you, do you have a lot of this documentation in your August review? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. We've There's several videos on the Internet that I've uh, produced and or been recorded that people can listen to. And there's a lot of information on my website as well. Mm -hmm. Could you uh, lead people to those websites? I think you have, is it three websites you have? Uh, it is, augustforecast.com. Um, there's a lot of information on there that's free for the uh, just the downloading or the reading. Mm -hmm. And um, our original books, uh, Trilaterals Over Washington, are not uh, not in print anymore, but people can typically find them on, um, oh, like Amazon or, or maybe, you know, some other, you know, used book, rare book sources and stuff. There's still a few floating around. And you have, is it Revelation Gate Ministries as well? That's exactly right. That's a, hmm. obviously, it's a separate from, from uh, August Forecast, uh, revelationgate.com. And uh, that does focus on Bible prophecy. And, you know, my goal is to relate this to, uh, you know, a prophetical standpoint, uh, you know, so that people can really kind of get in sync with what's going on here. And, you know, when I say in sync, it's not quite the right term, but Christians are constantly confused by what's going on in the world. 
you know, there's, there's so you don't have to look very far to find something that doesn't line up with what the Bible says it ought to be. And so there's a lot of discussion and there's a lot of consternation about uh, events and, you know, things that people do and societal trends and stuff like that. And it's very difficult for Christians to get a handle on what's going on and, well, what should I be watching for? And, well, what is the Lord really coming back? And is there, you know, are these things really going to take place and so on? And this confusion is mostly bred out of ignorance. It's not out of stupidity. It's out of ignorance. They're ignorant of history. They're ignorant of current events. <laughs> and in many cases, they're ignorant of basic thinking in logical terms. And they can't reason things out very well. So, you know, my goal with Revelation Gate Ministries is to help Christians to see this more clearly and to have a more balanced view of what really exists in the world. And I cringe sometimes to use the term biblical worldview. <laughs> this is a big buzz phrase over here right now. You know, well, Christians should have a biblical worldview. Yeah, I see. I, I get the impression of what what you you mean by that because it it does connote a sort of old-fashioned worldview, but that's not what it means. Well, no, and trying to justify what the world does in terms of the Bible is a futile exercise. <laughs> but a worldview, whatever it is, should be based on reality, not on fantasy. And so you can't go cooking up, you know, some kind of a correct worldview and just say, okay, that's going to be it, and then go justify it with Scripture. You basically just need to see reality as it is. <laughs> just say that's what it is, you know. It's like we don't need to spiritualize it. Say this is what's going on. This is the reality of the matter, the fact of the matter. Now square it with what you know about the Bible. <laughs> the Bible isn't wrong in any area. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, but... You know, the Bible's not wrong, but if you if you don't understand something that you see in the world, well, the place to go find out about it is, is from the Bible itself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if Christians were able to do that more frequently, they would they would find themselves with a much lower level of fear and anxiety over what's going on in the world yeah. because they'd see they'd see the overall plan. And that's not to say that God couldn't turn it back. He's done this before. When, when Hitler was, was ravaging Europe, Christians in Europe thought it was curtains. I'm sure they thought the world is ending and, and he's the Antichrist and we're all, you know, we're all doomed and, and it's just over. They must have had those thoughts. And you know what? It almost could have happened. He almost won. You know, he could. Yes, in, indeed. <laughs> indeed. That's a very interesting thought, isn't it? Because I've had people email me and say, well, you know, if this new world order is going to happen and it's prophesied in the Bible, then there is nothing we can do about it at all. But uh, that's not the way prophecy works, is it? Because we don't actually know that this particular set of events that's happening at the moment is going to be the fulfillment. It could be right. uh, another set in future, it could be yet another in future. We don't actually know. So we always have to work towards the kingdom of God. <laughs> instead of the, the opposite kingdom. That's right. And, and you have to leave, you have to always leave room for the sovereignty of God yeah. to do what he wants to do. And, you know, we can't really prejudge that, what he's going to do in any particularly given situation. But we can hope and we can certainly pray to that direction that he will reverse things. There's nothing wrong with that either, I don't think. But um, mm. we also have to realize that this really may be the end, and we need to have that in preparation as well. Sure. And uh, not be afraid to face it, not run from it, but rather to face it and say, you know what? If he does turn the tide back or somehow give us an extension, that's wonderful. You know, that, that just means, if nothing else, more people will get saved in the process. In the meantime, whatever, the bride of Christ will be larger than it is today, and we'll get to work things out for a longer period of time. 
But if it is drawing closer to the end, there's nothing wrong with that either. And I, I would remind people that the Apostle Paul himself said to live as Christ and to die as gain. So, you know, it's like, okay, we need to have that kind of attitude. And and I have to say, it's hard to whip a man or a woman that has that kind of attitude. Well, absolutely. You know, like, yes, indeed. You know, you're doing what you're yes. doing what you can here now, and you realize that if it's if it's curtains for you in the end, that you're better off than you ever were here anyhow. So, uh, you know, you'd be happy with either with either outcome. And so this is why you have the Revelation Gate Ministries as well as your August forecast and August review, because you presumably because you actually want to give a, a context for people in which to understand exactly. what's going on in the world and, and not to be floundered. Exactly. And and a second part, and I have to say, a second part of Revelation Gate Ministries has specifically to do with how globalism is taking over the the evangelical church. <laughs> Remember the three-legged stool? <laughs> Another subject. You know, uh, <laughs> yes. Evangelical Christianity has been dominated by these same people and these same forces to where technocracy is creeping into the church. Well, it's not creeping anymore. It's it's running. It's racing. Uh, well, I'd, I'd love to ask you about that as well. We did actually touch on it with uh, Dr. Martin Erdman on an interview on a previous occasion, but I'd love to <laughs> chat to you about that as well. But uh, well, we're, we're, swiftly yeah. run, we're swiftly running out of time this time, but it has been absolutely wonderful speaking to you, Patrick Wood. Thank you ever so much for coming on. I mean, you've, you've not only have you made it clear what uh, the Trilateral Commission actually is and given some idea of how it's actually working out in the world uh, throughout its history and even today, but uh, you've also given us this uh, biblical uh, way of looking at the events that are taking place today, giving us an interpretative model there, which I think is, is absolutely fantastic. So thank you ever so much for joining us today. You're entirely welcome. I've enjoyed it, and uh, I hope it uh, falls on some open ears, that is, uh, people who have ears to hear. <laughs> absolutely. Thank you ever so much. You're welcome.